Good morning, saints. It's such a privilege to be here with you. And for those that are watching us online, a very, very warm welcome. Before we continue on our journey in Mark, as I've been praying for you today, I just had such a burden that we will pray for all those that have carried a burden with them this morning. If you have arrived here today with any kind of burden, whether it is financial or relational or health or whatever it may be, I want, before you stand up to pray, I want to ask you, please, I will pray with you and the others will join me in prayer with you. On one condition, we are going to leave those burdens here today. We're not going to take them back home with us. Even if you want to stand on behalf of somebody else, you are welcome to do that. But all those of you that are carrying a burden, would you like to stand? I just want to pray with you for God to intervene in your life. Whatever the burden may be, how light or how heavy, he says, my yoke is soft and my burden is light. Don't be shy. Our Father, you are the living God. We've just sang your praises. And we just humbly come and ask you to take off these burdens. Lord, they are too heavy for us to carry. We are buckling. We give them to you today. Will you please bring healing where healing is necessary? Will you please bring financial relief where relief is necessary? Relationally, Lord, resolve the, the bitterness and resentment and anger in our hearts, please. And restore these relationships, we pray. And Lord, any other burden that we are carrying for the future, the worries, we leave them all here today, Lord. And I pray that you will help us to mount up like eagles again, to soar and not run around like chickens here on earth. Bless my brothers and sisters. Fill them afresh with your Holy Spirit. Give them hope today, please. Lift up their eyes, Lord, that they will see Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Please be seated. And thank you for your honesty to stand up. I know it is not easy. As I said, we are on a journey in the Gospel of Mark. And thank you so much, Matthew, for the last two Sundays that you've shared with us on who the person of Jesus is. And we are going to continue on that same journey. In Matthew, oh, sorry, Mark chapter 6, if you want to look in the Bible in the pew, it's page 789 if you want to follow us there. This passage talks about three stories, and we are briefly going to look at each one of them. Why is it so important for us to understand who Jesus is? Pastor Bill said the journey in Mark is also a disciple-making journey. Who, what is, who is a disciple? A disciple is someone that follows the Lord Jesus with all their heart and then helps others to do the same. 
So disciple making, discipleship doesn't stop with us. It starts with us and then we take the hands of others to help them in the process so that they in turn can help others on this journey as well. For us to know Jesus helps us in our love for Him, in our obedience, in our following, in our readiness, in our submission. If we do not know who Jesus is, it is so difficult for us to love, follow, submit, and even suffer with Him. Is He really that great, awesome, amazing, magnificent, spectacular, holy God and King? This passage this morning will affirm that, confirm it again. And can I encourage you to put on your seatbelt today, please, because some of the journey is a little bit rough as we are going to go through it. But may the Lord help us to get a new understanding of who He is. I think we've all had the experience of things that we've experienced, a movie that we watch and we say, this is a must-see, or an experience, this is a must-do, or a must-meet person. Do we say the same about our Lord Jesus? Are we so totally convinced about Him? The three stories are first about how did his hometown think of Jesus? Nazareth, what did they think about him? The second story is about his disciples. What did his disciples think about him? And the third one is, what did Herod think about Jesus? Let's go and read their stories. Let's just ask the Lord to help us. Our Father, we pray that you will lead us through your spirit, please. Katie already asked it so beautifully, but will you come and speak to us, please? Meet us exactly where we are at. And I pray that you will feed us so that we can be strengthened and continue our journey with you. And Lord, where we need to repent today, will you help us? Where we need to realign ourselves, as Matthew has said last week, Help us, please. If we need to make choices today, help us with those as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 6, verse 1 to 6. It says, Jesus, he went away from there. Where was there? Remember last week, we spoke about Jairus' daughter that has been raised from the dead. This has just happened. That is the there. He went away from there. Can you imagine how pumped his disciples were? A girl just has been risen from the dead. They've never seen anything like that. So you can imagine the excitement in their hearts when they came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. Verse 2. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. 
And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there. Perhaps one of the saddest verses in Scripture. He could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Two things happened to the people in Nazareth. First one, they were astonished. But not astonished in a positive way. Astonished in a negative way. They were in utter shock. They were awestruck. And that's why they ask these three questions. Where? What? How? Not positive questions of inquiring. And then they even answered it themselves. They said, is this not the carpenter? In other words, we saw this guy growing up in front of us. He works with his hands. He's a craftsman. Where does all this wisdom and insight and understanding come from? They couldn't put the two together. Isn't he the son of Mary? If you want to refer to somebody in a dishonorary way, you will say, isn't he the son of Mary? If you want to refer to somebody in an honorary way, you would say, isn't he the son of Joseph, the father? So they made a derogatory comment about his, where he was coming from. And then the same about, isn't he the brother of, and are not his sisters here with him, with us? All three comments just to push him down. What did they want to do? They want to bring Jesus down to their level where they can manage him. They thought they had Jesus figured out. They thought we are in control of our lives, not Jesus. The second thing that they did is they took offense at him. The meaning of the language here is they took offense over and over and again and again and again. In Mark 3, verse 33 to 35, we read that Mary and the brothers and sisters came to look for Jesus. He was busy teaching somewhere. And when they came to the place, they sent somebody inside and says, Say to Jesus, your mother and brothers and sisters are outside. Let's read that in Mark chapter 3, verse 33. And he answered them. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. In other words, if we can contextualize this, we can say this morning, we are his home village. We are his family. We are his relatives. When Karen and I arrived here in Boca, we're here for a short while, and then people said to us, welcome in the Boca bubble. I couldn't figure that out for the life of me. What is the Boca bubble? And after I've been here, we've been here for a while, and we come to know the people, we would ask them, explain to us, please, what is the Boca bubble? 
And then they said to us, this bubble that we are living in is a look good, live good, and feel good bubble. Now I know none of you belongs to this bubble club. <laughs> but this was similar in Nazareth. And what is the danger of this? When we begin to follow Jesus, our focus, attention, love is to do all that he's asking us to do. And in return, he blesses us beyond description. But slowly in the bubble club, it switches around. When the focus is on me, my feel good, look good, live good. My understanding of Jesus is then also, he is there to make me feel good, live good, and look good. We switch the relationship. The research from Barna that was just released last week, they asked the question, what is the number one reason today in the United States why people are reluctant to follow Jesus? Do you know what was the answer? We as believers, we as his family members, we are so full of hypocrisy. We live one life when we are here, and when we walk out of these doors, we are a different person. What was the result in Nazareth? When all this happened, we read in verse 5, he could do no mighty work there. We've just read in Jairus' story, he came to Jesus, he pleaded with Jesus, come please, please, it's urgent, she's dying. And then, as Matthew explains so beautifully, he was interrupted, the woman that had the flow of blood. And then after she was healed, the message came to him, to Jairus, and says, don't bother him anymore, she's dead. What was Jesus' two words to him? Don't be afraid, believe. Don't be afraid, believe. There, he could not do any mighty work there because they did not believe. The second thing is, he marveled because of their unbelief. Jesus was shocked. In front of their eyes, he did the miracles. In front of their ears, they could hear his message. And yet, they said, we don't believe it. It is the same as God would say to us today, I have given you my word. I've given you my son. I've given you the Holy Spirit. I've given you the church. Is there anything else I can give you? I love you. And I so desire to work in and through you. Do we believe that? And then the third thing, what is for me the most tragic, verse 6, he went about among the villages teaching. As far as we know, Jesus left Nazareth and he never returned. The question this morning is, who is your boss? Who is your Lord, your King, your Master and your Savior? In 1553 to 1558, Queen 
Mary I was ruling in Britain. She was also more known as Bloody Mary. She made it her mission in life to eradicate Protestantism from the British Isles. A little bit north in Oxford, during that time, she has sent more than 250 people to die by fire at the stake. A little bit north in Oxford, Michael Hauker, he was a young man in his 20s, he was working there, he just got married, his wife expected their first son, gave birth, and then he wanted, now Michael, oh sorry, Thomas, loved the Lord Jesus with all his heart, he was passionate about him, he didn't want his son to be baptized as a Roman Catholic, so he went back to his village where he came from and he thought, maybe I can still find a Protestant priest there that would be willing to baptize my boy. He went there and he waited too long because you only had three months to baptize your child. They found out he's been there longer than three months. So they challenged him. They took him to, Ro uh, to London. The bishops heard his story, pleaded with him to recant. He just said, I have one life to live. I will not be able to live my life if I have to deny Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. I can't do it. And they said, you're going to burn at the stake. He said, then that is my verdict. That is the end of my life. Think of your wife. Think of your boy. And he said, and think of Jesus. They could not convince him otherwise. And then towards the end, he was, day was sentenced, day was 10 April 1555. As the time drew shorter, his friends initially tried to convince him, and they saw they're not going to move anywhere because he was so in love with Jesus. Towards the end, they said to him, will you please, when you are burning, and you find the space, will you give us a small indication? Just wave or raise your hand or something like that, just to give us an indication that Jesus was there with you in the fire. He said, I cannot promise, but I'll try. So the day that they tied him with a big chain to the stake, and they lit the fire, he first started off praying, and then he shared Jesus' story with all those that were watching. And later on, the fire became so loud, they couldn't hear him anymore. He stood there still. His friends thought he must have been dead already. His body so scorched, his face unrecognizable. And then suddenly, he raised his hands, and he clapped him three times, and he slumped to death. Who is your Jesus? He is the one worthy of living and worthy of dying for. Let's read the story in Mark chapter 6, verse 7 to 13. Jesus and his disciples. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And again, they've just come from a situation that they have been taken offense at. And now Jesus is saying to them, come, I want to send you out. You've just seen the miracle of Jairus' daughter. You've just been taken offense at. He sent them out two by two and gave them authority 
over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. The reason for the two tunics were the one they would use at night time as a blanket to sleep in. He said, even that, leave it. And if verse 11, sorry, verse 10, and he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. He said, a disciple is someone that follows the Lord Jesus and takes others with them in that journey. And that is exactly what they did. Jesus sent them out two by two. What was Jesus saying to them by that action? He was saying to his disciples, you know, I love you. You know, I believe in you. You know, I'm proud of you. This message is not my message. It is our message. Let's participate in this together. The second one is he gave them authority. And Matthew explained it so beautifully. He gave them authority in speech, in healing, and in the storm. The same authority that he had, he gave to them. And the third thing is he charged them to take nothing for their journey. No bread, no bag, no money. Why was that so important? Because we grow up from children, we are taught to be independent, to manage our own lives. But when we come to Jesus, he wants us to live in utter dependence upon him. That's what he said. He says, I do nothing. I say nothing unless I see my father doing it or I hear my father doing it. So his life was a life of utter dependence upon his father. And he was trying to teach that to his disciples as well. And that's a huge challenge for us as Jesus followers to live that life of total dependence upon him. Revelation 3 verse 17, Jesus was sharing about the same message to the church in Laodicea. And he said, you say, I am rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. Realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Even in the church in Laodicea, he acknowledged he doesn't want us to live independent lives of him. Total dependence upon him, interdependence upon one another because we are a body. When Jesus is your boss, your master, your Lord, and your king, what happens? The first thing is we obey him. When he sends us out, we go. The second one is they proclaim the people should repent. How many of you have been following the Ashbury Revival? Magnificent. On the 8th of February, a revival broke out, and it's the ninth one that God came and visited Ashbury College in Kentucky. A small town, 6,000 residents. 
and it just went on until last weekend. Magnificent. I love one of the reporters that came there just to write an article about the revival. He said, I arrived around 6.30 in the evening. And he made a number of observations, just want to highlight one or two of them. He said, the first thing that touched me about it was Jesus was the center focus. It was not about people. It was not about fame. It was not about personalities. The focus was Jesus. There was a huge anticipation. People expecting God to meet with them, to do extraordinary things in their midst. He said it was student-led. He also said the worship was so powerful. Every word mattered to God. The joy in the worship, he said, was so meaningful. And then thousands of people came to visit the little town. So much so that the visitors were more than the residents. And the mayor and the police had to say, whoa, we need to make a plan here. We are not against people coming to our place. But a little bit too many of them at the moment. So people were coming. And then two more things. He said, the whole revival was marked by repentance. He says, I was there for a half an hour only to take notes because I wanted to write an article. Within a half an hour, I was in the front, on my knees, weeping, repenting before God, all my sins and the sins of my family. And he says the last thing that touched him so much is the, the zeal. Everyone that was there just had one thought in their minds. This we need to tell the nations. This message about Jesus must go out to the ends of the earth. And this is what the disciples did. They proclaimed that people should repent. They cast out many demons. In other words, they delivered people so that they can also come and follow Jesus. They anointed them with oil. They cared for those that were sick because they want them also to follow Jesus. And then verse 14, Jesus' name had become known. Through the disciples, his name became so known in the whole area, and we will pick up that story in a moment. Karen and I are journeying with another couple that are leaders of another mission organization, and I've spoken to you about them before. They run about 40 orphanages in 10 different countries. And one of the couples are running a number of orphanages in the northern part of Pakistan, a Muslim area, least reach, very few believers. And the Muslims give them an incredible hard time. He says daily they would come and persecute them and yeah, just make life impossible for them. And then they decided two Christmases ago, they're going to give a big Christmas banquet to the leaders in town, those same police officers and mayor and the army chiefs that gives them such a difficult time. They're going to invite them for a dinner. So they did that. This past year in December, they did it the second time. And they even invited the governor of that area. He came with a big TV crew to make a recording of the event, more focused on him and his goodwill. Nakash was able to share Jesus' story to all those that were there. But God spoke in such a powerful way that that video of that Christmas meal have now been broadcast four times on national television in Pakistan. The local imam have come to Nakash and says, can I please have a Bible? I want to learn more about this Jesus that you are talking about. This was the disciples' Jesus. 
who is your boss, your Lord, your master, and your king. Let's go to the last story, Jesus and Herod. And we read that from verse 14 to 29. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John. Incredible words. Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. In other words, safe from his wife, who wanted to take him out. When he heard him, that is when Herod heard John, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So Herod and John got together fairly regularly to talk to one another. Then verse 21, but, but on an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men in Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she was only 12 or 14 years old, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mom, For what shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste, to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king, the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went out beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This paragraph starts off with a question, who is Jesus? And they gave three answers. Some said he's John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Others said he's Elijah. Others said he's a prophet. And then Herod made the decision, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Why did Herod say that? Because that put him in control. He is the king. In other words, this Jesus is as manageable as John the Baptist. I will decide when, where, and if he lives. 
He was not a real king either, King Herod. It was a title that he has chosen himself. He was a tetrarch. He was ruling over a quarter of the empire there. There was such a huge power play between Herod and Herodias, his wife, because she wanted to kill John. And Herod didn't want to do that because he was afraid of John. Imagine being a king and afraid. He kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed and yet heard him gladly. Why was Herod perplexed? Because in Matthew chapter 3 verse 2, John was preaching repentance and the kingdom of heaven. We just sang it a few moments ago. Herod could not bring together his kingship and repentance. Repentance is for weak people. That gap was just absolutely for him too big to understand in his small little mind. It left him perplexed. And then John was talking about the kingdom of heaven and a king for that kingdom. He couldn't fathom that. Because I am the king, Herod said. I will have no opposition. He so totally misunderstood Jesus. What do we learn from Herod and Herodias? When we think we are the boss, we are the master, we are the Lord, we are the king of our lives, we like to live with a definable Jesus. Jesus that we can put in a little box. A Jesus that we can say, I killed his predecessor. And I will so in the same way take care of him as well. The second thing that he did, he gave himself a title that was not his. Titles leads so often to entitlement. Entitlement leads to exaggeration. And that's exactly what Herod did. He did not have a dime to give to Salome, Herodias' daughter. And he promised her half of his kingdom. He didn't have a half of a kingdom to give away. He had nothing. He could not deliver if she would ask him anything. Bitterness and revenge destroyed both Herod and Herodias. You know what happened? His first wife father was the king of the kingdom next to him. He came and attacked Herod. He didn't kill him, but he destroyed his kingdom. So Herod and Herodias made an appointment with Caesar in Rome because they didn't like the title Tetrarch. They want to be called king and queen. So they went to see Caesar in Rome, and Caesar banished them to France, to a little town, and that is where they died. If you remain king of your life, the end result will be the same in your life. You will be banished from God's presence. You will not spend eternity with Him. What do we learn from John the Baptist? John the Baptist was not afraid. Fear was not part of his outfit. He spoke directly to the king and the queen about their wrongs. And his righteousness and his holiness was his power. So much so that Herod feared him. His power was manifested in weakness. When we are weak, then God is strong. Matthew shared with us last week, our posture, not our position, 
our posture is the one of humility, that will usher in the presence and the power of God. Your head on a platter at the king's banquet does not determine your greatness. Can I say that again? Your head on a platter at the king's banquet does not determine your greatness. Your greatness is determined by Jesus. Listen to his words in Matthew 11. He says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. You, beloved, is greater than John the Baptist. So what do we take from these three stories? Three questions I want to ask you. Do you take offense at Jesus? Are you blocking what God wants to do in our community, in our town, and in our state? Or are you daily waiting for His assignments so that you can be sent out every day with His authority to accomplish His purposes? Or are you still thinking, I am the King. I am the Lord of my life. Can I invite you today, please? We're going to close now in a song after we've prayed. Let's just come forward, just like in the revival, and just come and repent. Just say to God, sorry. Sorry that I'm like Nazareth, or sorry like, that I am like Herod. I want to lay down my life, just like Thomas Hawker did, so that we can see your glory come in our mind, lives, in our church, in our community. Lord, we make you again Lord, King, and Master of our lives. If you don't know Jesus, if you are still the King, just like Herod, Jesus is waiting for you. Please come. I'll be here in the front with others. We would love to pray with you. Many of the elders will be out in the lobby to talk and pray with you as well. But please come. Do not go home today with any other burden but with a new understanding of a Jesus that loves you and is passionate about you. Let us pray together. Our Father, thank you for your word that is so alive, sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts between marrow and bone. We repent if we are like Nazareth citizens, taking offense at you. Forgive us, please, Lord. We so desire for you to work again in our midst. Like you've done in Ashbury, like you've done so many times in history. Lord, will you come and move in our midst again? Like your disciples, Lord, send us out, please. We are excited. We are so in love with you, and we want others to know that. Lord, forgive us where we still think we are the kings of our lives. We call the shots. We are the boss. Lord, forgive us for that bubble we are living in, that illusion. We hail you as the king, and we submit gladly to your leadership, to your lordship. 
pray your blessing on my brothers and sisters. Bless them, bless them, and bless them. Thank you, Lord. Amen.